Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to Nuance of Impact. Now, let me preface our guests today. I'm going to give you a little context. And yes, guests is plural. Two guests, a joint interview. A year and a half ago, I received an invitation to attend a conference in LA for free called the Social Innovation Summit. It seemed to be hosted by an investment bank, which I thought was odd, and I kept thinking it was too good to be true, until I was sitting in the front row listening to the COO of a company called Landmark Ventures. That COO was Melachoa, who is one of our guests today. Landmark Ventures is a global investment bank and strategic advisory firm that specializes in technology within digital media, internet of things, cybersecurity, and healthcare. Their Mel is the industry lead on education, technology, and the social innovation sector. Now it's all making sense, right? He also helps produce the Social Innovation Summit, that very same conference where I sat a year ago to listen to Mel moderate. This is all in addition to his other CEO duties, duties like strategic projects and talent initiatives. Our other guest is Jamie Sears. Jamie Sears is the head of community affairs and corporate responsibility for UBS Americas. This one leads the team that drives social impact through grant making and partnerships, stakeholder engagement, employee volunteering, and so much more, all for 20,000 colleagues in her region. Jamie has been a moderator and presenter at the Social Innovation Summit, and her and Mel are actually really close longtime friends. All right, enough with the intros. Sit back, pop in those headphones, and welcome Jamie Sears and Mel Ochoa. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. Well, happy Wednesday, everyone. I am super excited to have Jamie Sears, Head of Community Affairs and Corporate Responsibility at UBS Americas. And that's right, two guests, Mel Ochoa, CEO at Landmark Ventures here today. Mel and Jamie know each other very well. So I'm excited to go through our first duo interview. We'll call it that. Hi, guys. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Wow, this is exciting. Duos. We're duos, Jamie. <laughs> This is exciting. Thank you for yeah. having me. I feel like this is Batman and Robin. I don't know who would be Batman. I think you would be Batman because I sort of, yes. you know, yeah, you I'd would definitely be Batman. Be Batman. Batwoman. Amy, why would you be Batman? He'd be my sidekick. That's how, that's how I'm just kidding. <laughs> no reason. There's no reason. Why. That's just how nature is, works out. Like that's just our relationship. Natural. Jamie's the natural leader is what you're saying. I actually feel like maybe Jamie, cause she's a mother. I know her, her family. She probably, I just, Picture her with a, a utility belt at all times of <laughs> here are wipes, here are Cheerios, here, you know, everything. So I would sort of be the schlocky sidekick of like, I'll catch up with you later. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I am usually prepared for people who need snacks and people who might, yeah, have accidents. Just kidding. Well, I wish we were in the same time zone in the same vicinity because I always need snacks. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you guys meet? Like how, where did this friendship start? Uh, quite a while ago, 
I don't how, probably 2006, um, about that time, I was applying to business school. I was out in San Francisco or the San Francisco Bay Area uh, working at a children's museum, uh, the Bay Area Discovery Museum, which I absolutely loved. And it was just time for me to go to business school. I thought uh, you just wanted to uh, learn new skills. But until then, I was sort of uh, learning things through baptism by fire or just picking up skills here and there and not really, uh, you know, any formal training or learning. And I thought, well, uh, it would be great to go to business school. Don't really know what it means to go to business school, but there's a network involved and maybe I could learn things from a true professor or through a book that's, you know, you're, everyone's supposed to read. So as I was looking at places to go uh, throughout the United States, uh, I sort of knew I wanted to live in Manhattan seems like a place everyone should live at least once in their lives. Uh, it's such an exciting place here. And I was looking at NYU or Columbia and uh, Jamie uh, was part of this program called the, uh, the Reynolds Program in Social Entrepreneurship at the time. I think it's changed name since. Um, but it was a program that, or a fellowship that pulled together people in the social impact space, uh, probably growing leaders in the social impact space and essentially what the program did was uh, pulled in, I think two fellows per school at NYU. So it was two medical students, two policy students, two law uh, students, uh, two business school students, et cetera, into a cohort. And so Jamie was, uh, and it, this was new, this was the first cohort that I entered into. And Jamie was uh, uh, part of building the cohort and um, establishing it, she was behind the scenes, she was on the staff side. And so she and I got to know each other. Awesome. Is it the same story? Is that how you remember it, Jamie? <laughs> yes. Totally different yes. story. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, I was in grad school at the same time, so I actually had the opportunity not only to meet people like Mel, but also partake in programming that I was in the, you know, background uh, developing and managing, but yeah, the Reynolds fellows were um, all people who, you know, were going to have a big mark in the world in terms of impact from different backgrounds. And so, um, yes, Mel was part of our first class and I helped to set up, uh, you know, the selection process and obviously some of the, the things that the fellows uh, received as a part of the program. And um, so it was wonderful to get to know him while we were in grad school and stay in touch. You guys kind of both ended up in the impact space, hey? I mean, I think we, we were both doing that and Mel, Mel was doing more of that after, after business school, but I had come to grad school from working at Teach for America and very mm -hmm. much um, was sort of on that path. And I think what was different for me is after studying public policy and um, you know, social innovation and nonprofit management, instead of going back into the nonprofit sector, I ended up going to work at a bank, um, in, but doing, you know, uh, social impact work. Hmm. Yeah. You guys ever find like, and this is maybe just because I also came from, come from a business school background. And I always joke that like, when you go to business school, it's less so about the content of the courses and more so about like the iterative learnings around the way and the friendships you make and how they challenge you. And it's kind of funny that, you know, you guys met in business school, but you both ended up in sort of the, the corporate side of social impact and, and social, um, yeah, just social impact and, and community engagement. And Mel, you also ended up at an investment bank. Yeah. 
interesting turn of events. Um, you know, you're right. At the, at, when I was going to business school or when I was thinking about going to business school, it was a little bit more unusual for uh, a nonprofit person or someone thinking about social impact to go into business school. There were some schools out there that had maybe a handful of years uh, putting together a program. So like Stanford had some sort of cert certification program or, or sub program within the business school. I think Northwestern was doing some things. Uh, Yale, obviously, uh, I guess you could say it was the granddaddy of, of nonprofit management, if you will. Um, the but, granddaddy of nonprofit. Yeah, thinking like the Rose Bowl, the grand granddaddy of, of bowls. Um, so it was a little bit unusual when I was thinking about business school and actually a lot of people in the nonprofit sector when I asked around, should I do it or should I not do it? Uh, you know, mixed mixed reactions um, in terms of if it was needed or not. Uh, and so uh, going to business school, it wasn't necessarily because I wanted to advance my career in nonprofit management. I felt like there were a lot of other things that I could add to my skill set outside of that. Uh, and so all the things you come across in business school and also policy school, Wagner, uh, that Jamie went to, you sort of learn the same things like accounting or org behavior or anything that is applicable wherever you are, uh, whether it's social sector, private sector, public sector, et cetera. Um, so I think that I thought those skills were really, really important to pick up at that time in my life. Um, to your point, yeah, I think business school is different for everyone. A lot of people come to me to ask about business school now, or I'm still very involved at NYU Stern. And so I interview uh, people coming in or they put me in touch with people thinking about business school or NYU Stern. Um, and I think it is different for everyone. I think uh, generally, and I know this is a blanket statement and I'll probably get in trouble for saying it, but most business schools are the same. You're gonna learn the same marketing concepts. You're gonna learn the same accounting techniques. Uh, there's some prestige, there's some brand that goes along with different business schools, um, but they're mostly the same. And so I think the other factors that you look at with a school, whether a Wagner or a, or a Stern, um, are some of the things you mentioned in terms of network, social capital that you build for your jobs after. Uh, school, grad school is a big recruitment uh, hub. So, you know, on day one, recruiters are, are knocking on your door to talk to you. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons. I think for the social impact aspect, uh, you know, when I went to NYU Stern, there wasn't a big social impact, social entrepreneurship program. Um, uh, there was a little bit here and there. There was a club on campus, a lot of energy around it. Um, but at, during my time, a lot of people added into just building the things that I think we're preparing for or preparing the social entrepreneurs that we see out there now, uh, building organizations, doing big things. And really, and this was again, 2006, 2008 timeframe, I think you see a uh, a pivot around that time of a lot of people going to grad school, picking up this thing called social entrepreneurship and going out into large organizations uh, and, uh, you know, thinking of it a little bit more in business terms or portfolio management terms or however you want to look at it while still not being totally businessy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would yeah, I'd agree with that. What do you guys think? And like, I think what's fascinating is Landmark Ventures is, I remember, so I guess I should say we met or my first introduction to Landmark Ventures was I received this ominous email one day 
that said, <laughs> please attend the Social Innovation Summit free of charge. And I look at the speakers list and it's like Nike and Blue Cross and like these UBS. huge incredible UBS, <laughs> Lyft. How like, did you say no to UBS? Yeah. You're from Jamie herself? <laughs> exactly. Edine <laughs> Burke Harris, like these incredible, incredible speakers. And so when I emailed and I was like, hi, um, hi there, hi, is this, is this a joke? Um, I think you have the wrong Rebecca. And they're like, no, it's, it's real. And then I went to my um, VP and said, hey, like, can I, can I go to this? Um, <laughs> and then he said, I mean, I don't know. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I kept saying like, I swear there's going to be a timeshare presentation or something <laughs> like for sure. I'm going to have to buy a condo in Mexico, yeah, totally. like through this conference. It, I kept waiting. It never came. Like the, well. <laughs> the timeshare presentation never came. So I think I've asked you this many times so we can talk about it, but like what no. business does Landmark Ventures have in the space of social impact and bringing social impact minds together? Incredibly like Jamie and <laughs> wonderful brands that are doing yeah. incredible things in the space. Absolutely. Um, so a couple thoughts first. Uh, I do have a bridge that I will sell you. So that, that pitch is coming up. So you're still <laughs> on the hook to buy something timeshare. Um, you know, we, we, uh, you know we, we don't really blanket everyone to come into our events. I think a lot of partners like Jamie or Nike or Starbucks, PwC, Kauffman Foundation, et cetera, um, see us as a strong convener of experts and uh, impact leaders. And so we curate heavily and uh, we highly curate our audience or our invitations. And so there is absolutely a reason you were sent an invitation. We're not exclusive by any means. Uh, you know, people who want to attend, um, you know, the majority of our tickets are uh, through partner codes. Uh, and so, you know, we don't want to be exclusive by any means, but we want to make sure that the people in the room um, build partnerships that are actually effective. Uh, and so, you know, you, that could be through a, a few different means, right? It could be you have influence within an organization to then partner with another organization to do something big. You have budget, you have experience, you have a perspective, anything. So that uh, at the end of the day, what we really strive for is partnership building through our convening power. Um, so, you know, that's one aspect of it. That's why someone like Jamie and UBS, she has developed many partnerships and built many relationships through uh, the Social Innovation Summit, hopefully that she couldn't get elsewhere so that we have that value in front of her. <laughs> but, um, but I think there is a difference when people come to one of our smaller engagements, like a learning journey where we take 40 people into a city to explore it over a couple of days to our, you know, we had nearly 6,000 people in our last summit. I think there is something about that partnership or the relationship development around that convening. I would love to hear from Jamie some of the, the partnerships that she developed, but to answer your other question in terms of why Landmark Ventures. So I would say about 15 years ago, our CEO, Zeev Klein, uh, who is very social impact minded. Like I will say it's surprising to me, and that's not a negative thing. It's surprising to me because before Social Innovation Summit, he ran Landmark Ventures for many years. Um, 
but he and I actually met in business school in a class that was focused on um, uh, raising grant money and giving it out to local organizations. I was in that grant class. Process, which Jamie was in as well. Yeah. Um, Jamie's like, I just connected the dots. Oh. No, I, yes, that's, yes, we were in that class together. Yeah. Z Jamie, was in my thanks group. for remembering. <laughs> wow, what an impression I've left on you. Uh, we'll go through your resume a little later. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, Ziva has always been uh, very focused on social impact, but when it comes to Landmark Ventures, we focus on relationship-driven business development. Uh, or rela relationship-driven venture development, if you will. So if it's capital raising, we're there for you. If it's building out uh, more people you wanna meet to grow your business, more customers, uh, partners, whatever it might be, we're there for you. If you wanna build out event platforms, you wanna have a curated event, we're there for you. Um, but for him, he thought, well, uh, we need to give back we have a responsibility as every other company or organization has, what could we do? We could paint schools, we could do whatever, but you know, we should really tap into the value we're providing. And it's that relationship driven business. Uh, and so how can we bring people together so that they are building those relationships and creating value? Um, you know, value creation is a very business school term, but I've learned that it's in nonprofits, it's in foundations, it's in everywhere. Value creation is a very, very big part of what we're all doing. And so that was really the concept of why Landmark Ventures, even though we have some, uh, you know, more business oriented uh, uh, things that we do or focus on, Social Innovation Summit is extremely important for us to pull uh, impact leaders together. Uh, you know, again, I, Jamie has a handful of stories that she probably can tap into in terms of partners that she's met. Yes, no, I have. I've been at a groupie of Social Innovation Summit for some time now. <laughs> um, no, it's true because because we have known each other for a long time, and now that you know, when I heard Mel talking about the era of when we were in you know graduate school, I think it was a really special time. Um, and when I think about where we are now, I was saying to him the other day, we're not young anymore, but we're not old either. So we're at uh, the sort of place in our lives where we probably can, you know, direct and enact a lot of the things that we were, you know, very idealistic about when we met, you know, however many years that, how is that, 15 years ago, maybe, um, or not, maybe not yet, 15 years, but, um, and that, you know, Zeev was a part of that time as well, and so in, in looking at how, um, you know, land landmark could be engaged in that and then all of us sort of went our separate ways and i think the community um, and the people that i've met over the years is really what's kept me engaged i mean every year i definitely learn or hear about like at least three things that just blow my mind just how people are being so creative around um, how to get at impact and it doesn't have to be in the straightforward like you can work in public policy or you work at a nonprofit in the education space. Um, there's just a lot of creativity and uh, I think just it's a very generative group. So a lot of ideas and people who are actually committed to executing on them, not just sort of being on a stage talking about I, I just came up with this incredible idea to save the world in X way. So 
um, I think I'm very drawn to mission oriented people um, and people who are willing to take leadership in whatever seat they're sitting in, whatever company or organization. And, and then, um, you know, who are open to, I think, just sharing um, the stage with one another or being a partner in some way. I think I've just met the best people through the network. And, um, you know, there's a lot of conferences and events, um, but I think just being able to come back together with those people makes a big difference. And definitely this year, even living through, like, you know, this pandemic and, um, I was just so like, I was so happy that they did their virtual global summit and it came just in time, um, just from what was going on in the world. And, and then even I joined something this past week and I heard someone say, I feel like I was really built for this moment. And I was like, these are my people. This is how I feel too. Um, so, and we all do different things. So it's, it's nice that it's not like all, people that work in corporate philanthropy kind of talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. You have people from different domain expert areas, expertise, I should say, have, have different domain expertise, um, are working in different industries, have different kinds of jobs and um, can share ideas, inspire each other, support each other, stuff like that. So do you guys, amazing. if you guys had to think about like, the kind of people that really excel in the social impact space. And I think like the social innovation summit really plays a role in just bringing together different minds. But I think those people still have things in common, kind of like you said, Jamie, what would you say those things are? Like when you think about the people that are in that room, what do they have in common and what makes them such great catalysts for impact? Tough question. Wow. Uh, so maybe I'll start Jamie to give you a little more time because I'm a little stuck <laughs> to be honest with you. I think as we look at the, Social Innovation Summit audience, we think of it in a few ways. First, in terms of that curation, um, we think of it in terms of maybe a third, a third, a third. So mm -hmm. we look for a third uh, corporate responsibility or corporate philanthropy to bring in that voice. And then a third funder. And so that could be uh, large Foundation. foundations, Gates, Annenberg, Kaufman, uh, other strong partners of ours. Um, uh, it, al it also could mean uh, philanthropists, uh, and so, you know, individuals. It also could mean venture capitalists. And so if, uh, you know, a, a VC is working on uh, clean tech or something, uh, that very much uh, gets involved uh, in what we're doing or, or, or some of the content. And then a third, innovators. And those could be social entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, kid scientists, intrapreneurs, um, you know, across the, the range, the spectrum. Um, and so when I think of all those together, as we curate our audiences to make sure that there's that balance of voices to have a good conversation uh, and build those partnerships, and there's a couple traits that come to mind. I think one is just a curious nature. Uh, it's something we look for at Landmark Ventures uh, as we recruit people. Just a curious nature in terms of wanting to see what's next, what else is out there, um, you know, not not being satisfied with the status quo. Um, and so I think that that has a lot to do with the, the attendees or participants or partners that are attracted to Social Innovation Summit. I think secondly, maybe an urgency, a sense of urgency, the urgency of now, if you will. Um, you know, everyone we talk to, especially our partners like a Nike or a Starbucks, they're almost like 
three steps ahead of us. Like, all right, come on, we, we, we got to do this. Put us in touch with someone you know, or this or that, which is very nice. It's refreshing to know that, you know, a lot of people think of a corporation as, you know, 44 floors of, um, of um, bureaucracy. bureaucracy and, you know, cubicles and this and that. I've actually seen it in such a different way through the Social Innovation Summit in terms of just a, a, an action-oriented group of people who want to do things. And then I think there's a mindset around collaboration. Um, and so some of our, our, our favorite stories are, are, you know, someone from a UBS partnering with someone from a Kauffman Foundation, partnering with a kid scientist, right? Um, you know, sprinkling in a little bit of all those three larger groups that we pull together. Um, and so that only comes through collaboration and people wanting to or knowing how to uh, work across fields. I think one thing yeah. that is interesting that I've seen is that impact is no longer, you know, way back as we talked about business school, it's no longer the person over in the quarter working on nonprofit stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, it really truly is cross-sector and cross-function. Um, you know, a lot of people come to Landmark Ventures because they need advice or direction or input because we see across the landscape in a lot of different ways. We're unique in that way and we're not built for that. You know, people like Zeev or me, like we weren't trained as consultants in any big firm or anything like that, but we have a vantage point in terms of Jamie could come to us and say, we're thinking about doing an education to employment program. You know, what's out there? What's happening in the private sector? What is the government doing? What, is, what are some of the largest nonprofits doing? Where are foundations giving their money? What is the automotive industry doing? What is cybersecurity doing? And yeah. so the summit has really pulled together uh, this audience where there's a collaboration, a true collaboration between so many different parts that you didn't see 15 years ago um, as much. Mm -hmm. When you guys think of collaboration, and maybe this is a question for Jamie, having sort of participated in some of these partnerships, when you think about collaboration, I think there's like collaboration, the flashy word collaboration, where it's like this idea of like everybody sitting in an incubator together and just like ideas flowing and like things are happening. And then there's sometimes like the realities of collaboration, which, and I think this is maybe like big corporate collaboration is a lot of people sitting in a room, a lot of ideas being thrown around and then 12 months of meeting minutes and you know, not a lot of advancement. So when you're thinking yeah. about collaboration, what would you say makes effective and by effective I mean mission driven collaboration so one thing that I was gonna say but I will answer your question is the magic I think about you know finding collaborators and partners through the SIS network is sort of like attracts like so people who really want to get something done I don't want to swear so I'll just the GSD types she means get shit done kind of people um, they, they follow through. And so you meet people and you, you understand that you're talking to someone that if there's an opportunity to do something together, that um, these are probably people who will follow through. Um, and I think another, another thing in terms of great partners is, you know, I think it takes a lot of work because I've sourced some great partners through um, you know, getting to know people through SIS, but it's not really straightforward because everyone has um, a point of view or their own theory of change. They have the priorities 
um, you know, that maybe they're trying to achieve for their organization or their company um, that is, you know, aligned to impact, but it might be also specific to their company um, and the things that they need, uh, they need to get out of it. So I think there's has to be um, some space for the back and forth of um, getting to a place where everybody is aligned and moving forward and excited to, you know, to have the impact together, but it's not usually um, straightforward because even if you do it based on people's um, capabilities, at least just on the surface, partnerships require a level of trust and communication and in a level of candor about how you're going to get there. And so everybody has different styles, different things that they're, they're trying to achieve while achieving a goal together. But um, I think it goes back to the people in the group that assemble, because I think the only thing I would add to, to some of the qualities that Mel was sharing is, you know, I think most people in the network have some sense of idealism. Like if you don't think the world can change or be different, you're probably not going to be attracted to being at the Social Innovation Summit. Um, if you're not, you know, if you don't have that growth mindset, and I'll talk a little bit about that, where you're open to hearing different approaches, that's probably, you know, not going to be your tribe. So in being able to meet people in that community, when you go to forge a partnership and to collaborate maybe on a big project, you, you know some of that's already there and that helps because mm -hmm. like I said, when you look back at everything, there's you know, a lot of continuous communication and alignment that's required and that everyone is committed to following through on what it will take for it to be successful. So mm -hmm. that makes a big difference. What are some of like the big learnings? Like I feel like some partnerships, I mean, some partnerships excel and I think it, a lot of it has to do with the people that are around the table. And like you said, level of trust, willingness to just be like, look, this is what my organization needs to get this done. And what does your organization need? And can we find some compatibility um, in that in order to, to create impact in the area we want to? What are some of the, the great lessons that you've learned from maybe the partnerships? Yes, that went well, but also the ones that like didn't go like that at all. Like the visioning was done. The partnership contract was great, but like, it didn't work. <laughs> Jamie has a hundred percent success rate on partnerships. So <laughs> no, I've, I've learned it never a lot. not works for in Jamie's world. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I mean, um, I think the quicker that you can lay out what is important and get sort of beneath the surface at what people's agendas are. Everyone has one. Every company has one. Um, that helps, that helps to, you know, have that understanding upfront. I have, you know, I would say some experience where that wasn't maybe clear at the outset. And then, you know, sometimes you've had those experience where you're running into a wall and you're like, I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> um, so that, um, that always helps having that, um, you know, understanding when you go into something and I've had some experiences where that wasn't maybe not fully understood or appreciated. And I think the other thing is that, and I have been thinking about this recently, is, you know, in a partnership, you really need one another and you just recognize the value that others can bring that you don't have. And that, you know, those, those things make something stronger. So I think that, that that balance needs to be there because if you could go off on your own, you might as well have just went ahead and done that. But um, if you are open to what others have to bring and then, you know, that there is a mutual sense of, in some ways, reliance on one another to, you know, follow through, obviously, on, 
on the things that you set out to do, but just a recognition of, of the value. Like I was just thinking the challenges that we are confronted with today, I don't know that it makes sense for any one of us to endeavor to do anything on our own. I think they're like, if you consider more of the systems, you know, systems thinking approach to challenges and meeting those challenges, thinking about how to bring in other assets and capabilities toward, you know, some of the things that we all want to contribute toward. Yeah, I think we're in a a much different world. And I I know this is so straightforward and basic. I know listeners are going to be like, duh. But, you know, we have such big issues now that, uh, that, that systems approach or that collaboration or the partnerships are so much more important. You think of, you know, the, the 1950s or 60s or 70s where, you know, NASA could think about space. That was the only thing, thinking about space and they were going to solve everything, right? Um, now, when we deal with things like climate change, it's no longer one entity like a NASA or a, or a uh, you know, a Xerox or something tackling this issue that we have in front of us. It's that collaborative approach. It really is that cross-sector approach. Uh, Landmark Ventures, we took on a project a handful of years ago where we were studying future of work. What it came down to or what we realized a little bit is that um, you have to have many people at the table or many organizations or entities at the table. But to Jamie's uh, point or the question before, you really have to have each person take ownership or responsibility for certain aspects of it. So almost assigning, which is you know such a basic uh, notion in general as well. But it really does matter in bigger things, not just in your company, on your team in terms of assigning ownership or responsibilities. But when you're thinking about the future of work or workforce development or putting more people back to jobs in a rural community, it's not just PwC coming in to help. PwC now needs to work with the local workforce board and the local boys and girls club and the local, you know, this and maybe pulling another large foundation and like Hoffman Foundation, um, you know, really thinking about who are the players that could come in and, and do something. The issue that we're having right now is that sometimes there aren't enough partners coming to the table, right? And so, you know, what we've been seeing is Maybe Jamie comes to the summit, meets someone else, they think about a partnership, but where's the government in all this? Where is, you know, we need two more foundations in all of this. And I'm, I'm not being political. I mean, like, you know, when we were going through the future of work exercise, what is government's role in future of work? Whereas 1950s, the government provided everything. Like it had, you know, R&D functions. It had this and that. Now, because of budget cuts and everything, it doesn't do that as much. But, the, you know, the government is the big gorilla in the room that can move things across the nation in terms of policy. So, mm-hmm. you know, are they absent at the table in terms of future of work? Is, you know, are the right companies absent at the table in terms of future of work, whatever it might be. So my point being, the issues in front of us need a lot more collaboration, a lot more of that systems approach, but I don't think we're there yet in terms mm-hmm. of everyone coming in, taking ownership. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at that picture behind you and I, you know, when we yeah. did our pre-interview, I was, I looked at it and I was going to ask you about it. And then I said, no, I'll save that. So tell <laughs> me about the photo behind you, because when people are listening to this, they won't be able to see it as we are. Yeah. So, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, for undergrad. Uh, it was a great experience and definitely something that I cherish and value, uh, in terms of setting me on a, 
for setting me up for success for the rest of my life. Um, and so this photo is Martin Luther King Jr. speaking on campus in 1967, I think, uh, but 1967, in what's called uh, Sproul Plaza, uh, actually on steps that are now called Mario Savio steps because of a couple of friends of mine who changed the steps in terms of Mario Savio was a, a leader of the free speech movement. And so they, uh, they took on the charge to uh, change the name of the steps. But Sproul Plaza, I think there are probably about 7,000 students there. Um, what's interesting is the building across the plaza is now called MLK, uh, the MLK building, but I don't think it was named that at the time. The other the interesting thing here uh, in this picture, this black and white picture, is that you look at the audience and it's pretty much all white students. This was going on during the civil rights movement, but also the free speech movement in Berkeley. And if you you know, know a little bit of the history. So there was some tension on campus in terms of free speech movement and civil rights movement close by in Oakland and on Berkeley. And so what's interesting about this picture too is that it's like 7,000 white kids listening to MLK uh, while the civil rights movement is going on. It shows you how the student composition of a place like Berkeley uh, and, you know, students focusing on, on the free speech movement. It's just a very inspiring picture for me seeing, you know, MLK on a campus I love, but it, the picture also is just so telling in a lot of other ways. And I think we have a long way to go, right? A lot of our college campuses don't have that diversity that we need. Diversity of thought, diversity of action, diversity of faces, uh, whatever sort of diversity you look to. So why is it on your wall? Uh, interesting. I, uh, I actually just changed it because of everything we've been going through over the last couple of months. You know, as a person of color, I am, Mexican-American. My family came from Mexico up to San Diego, you know, just a few generations ago. I think about race. I think about diversity. I wouldn't say that I'm an active leader in race, diversity, you know, DEI initiatives. I try to bring it to the things that I'm involved with in terms of the summit agenda or, you know, voices in my own life or people I look to get input or feedback or whatever it might be. But not out there broadly, right, as many other great leaders are right now. And so throughout my life, I've always maybe had my identity sort of in the back of my head, if you will. And I haven't really put it at the forefront as much. And I think over the last couple of months, as you know, really terrible things have been happening in our country that have been happening for 200 plus years. By no means do I think that all of a sudden we have injustices happening uh, or, or racial inequities happening right now. I felt over the last couple of months that it's, you know, it's time for me to put my identity a little more uh, front center. I mean, we're, we're three people of color here. I don't know if you guys have also felt the same way over the course of the last few months that it's sort of this awakening of sorts has sort of been a time to like re-engage with your own identity. And um, I remember speaking with the director of uh, community investment for Mountain Equipment Co-op, which is like in the U.S., it's like REI. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how you kind of end up like putting yourself in a box to sort of fit into business environments. And, and that's how, um, that's just sort of what we're used to. And it's funny because when I attended the Social Innovation Summit, I came home and was telling my husband how for a social innovation summit, it was the, one of the first conferences that I attended, I've ever attended, that had such great representation. And it really, it really struck me because it's not like that here. Like people working in the social impact space in Canada 
I would not say are predominantly people of color and people of diverse backgrounds. And so I don't know if it's a, like a US thing or if there's also, I think a lot of movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, those are movements that started in the States and have as a result of like social influence have become bigger in Canada. So I don't know if there's maybe just more of a focus and, and accountability of corporations to say like, if you're going to do this work, you need to have the right people in the room. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I think that that's why people say leadership matters. That event, the summit, the Social Innovation Summit, the representation that you see is because of the people who, who are behind it and making decisions about how to curate those voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm glad that, you know, I, I'm glad that there's more awareness paid to that, but I think they've been doing that for some time. We haven't really talked about this, but I think like to, to what you were saying, Rebecca, about identity and then what Mel, you know, what you were thinking about in terms of your identity. I think that Mel has been, you know, he's the person that's pulling all the strings in the background. One of the things I'm finding that's happening is different people I encounter, including some people at work, they're like, this is very interesting that you're you're quite open talking about like race and what's going on right now. It's like surprising to them, you know, identity in the boxes, either that we put ourselves in or others. I had this case of mistaken identity. A few of them happened actually at the end of last year, Mel, if you remember. So when people (laughs) see my name, you know, they might think I'm a, a guy. I mean, Jamie, Jamie is, there's men and women and my last name Sears. A lot of people think it's like my married name and it's not. I'm adopted. And so that's my family's name. The other piece of it is then, you know, people make assumptions just about what your life must be like or who you might be just obviously based on how you look. So, Mm -hmm. so many times in my life, people thought I was from California. I'm like, no, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a rural town of Pennsylvania, in Appalachia, actually. You're, you're embarrassed that. that people think you're from California? No, no. It's just that it's <laughs> Wait like, a minute here. <laughs> not at all. People are like, oh, are you from California? I'm like, why Look, would I be from California? Do they have In-N-Out burgers in Pennsylvania? That's my only argument. In, in, in Appalachia, no. They do not. If you want to talk about social impact, what are we doing to bring In-N-Out burgers to Canada? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Canada. Look, I'm still yeah. working on the East Coast. I don't yeah. have time to work on Canada as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I only bring that up because there's so many experiences that you have throughout your life that might, you know, open yourself, lend itself to um, having more of a voice um, right now that's related to your identity. And like for me, um, I am Korean. Um, that's where I was born. I've been in the U.S. for many years and so very much consider myself American um, I have a, you know, Caucasian family or white family adopted me. So I also have this background where I feel very much like I understand, um, I understand that group of people in some ways because of my family. Like, like the white perspective? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a really small rural town, like the kind of place that there's some signs up related to uh, an office holder, not that I would agree with that. So I, I feel like I understand that perspective very well because that's where I grew up. And um, then, you know, I've been living in the New York area for the past almost 20 years and 
we have a four-year-old who's going to be five soon who sees himself as Korean and maybe not yet black. My husband's black and um, maybe not understanding fully what that is, but we know that um, that's going to be part of his identity, very different from mine and very different from my husband's. But it's like, A, I guess you just, you never know by looking at someone. And B, um, I do think if you're having thoughts about identity right now and then bringing yourself more into the conversation about what's happening in this moment, to me, I think that's great. And I'm, I'm so heartened to hear that Mel's doing that because I think he's wonderful. So I'm, I want to hear more of his voice in that <laughs> It's an interesting time to be sure. I think as a country, we're, we're realizing a lot as a community, but I think mm-hmm. people are, are realizing a lot about themselves, you know, on, on, on so many fronts, mm-hmm. um, not only about their identity, but also their place in the world around them uh, and what they should be doing, what they haven't been doing or what they, you know, who they are and who they aren't, right? Uh, very personal uh, reflections. But then I think that carries over into the things we do, right? Our, uh, our families or our friends or our workplace, right? And our workplace now includes something like social impact. And so, you know, it really, I think a lot of people are, are thinking a lot more about, well, you know, what should my company be doing? What should mm-hmm. I be doing as almost an intrapreneur in, in pushing my company forward um, or, leave my company because I don't respect what it stands for or, or whatever it might be. Um, or, you know, I've seen a lot of, of cases where companies are doing new things because employees are pushing them. Um, uh, and so I think it, what we've been going through over the last handful of months, uh, you know, that, that the question around identity is manifesting itself or there's ripple effects in so many things outside of just policy or police reform or criminal justice reform or the things that are at the bullseye at the core that absolutely need to be changed must be changed. Um, But I think on the outer rings, you're saying, you know, it affect how does my team in a company of my four person team think about uh, identity now, which is, you know, quite removed from some of the things we see on TV or in the news, but it's just so interesting to see those those ripples happening throughout society right now that um you know i guess we're we're bubbling up but um it's just interesting to see that yeah and i kind of like it's funny i think that there is a tenant of um what you were talking about Jamie of just like people who are working i find and maybe this is just like because i resonated i've heard it from you i've heard it from other guests i've heard it from you mel like I think the whole becoming more open about our backgrounds and our identity and possibly the awakening of ourselves as well, like understanding our own experience and saying like, wait, I feel safe to acknowledge this now and to have conversations about it. I really do feel like um, it's very common in the types of roles that we have where we're working on social impact and we're pursuing social change through through corporate corporations, frankly. Um, And I think that because I think when we're the type of work that we do is very geared around influence, right? Like you're sitting around a table and you're thinking about like, what does this person need in order to get on board for this idea? Or what is this idea? What does this idea need to become in order for them to become interested? And so you're constantly thinking in these different archetypes or these different perspectives to say like, this is how this is going to work for them. And I, I think that what you said about sort of, you really understand like 
the white perspective. Like I'm, I'm biracial. That's, that's the environment I've always grown up with. And so I always, even when I have friends who are very involved with the Black Lives Matter movement or social justice reform, when we're talking about, I'm usually the one that says, okay, this is how I think it should be worded in this context. And they're saying, screw that. Like, you know, it's not time to adjust our narrative. And I'm saying, this is how it might, it might get this person on board. And this person has power and influence and we need it on board. Being more open with your identity is a power I think that we we have that we could use more of. I tend to actually be more of a, I mean, I joke around a lot, but I tend to be more of like a private person. And I have shared a lot more in the past few months with my colleagues, especially, um, because I think there is a curiosity. Why do you have this point of view? Where is it coming from? And for whatever reason, I think, you know, I think people want to know where that comes from. Has it served I think, you? I feel like, especially around the uprising for racial justice, I didn't realize that I sort of had avoided bringing kind of like my personal experience into things because I just had this idea of like everyone should care about this. It doesn't matter if it affects you or not. I don't know why I was, I guess I didn't realize that there was actually power to what you were saying in influencing people by sharing your personal experience. And I didn't really want my experience because of the role that I have in my company to be like the central focus of anything, but I have found that people come around in terms of understanding like you. I can say having grown up here since I was six and being raised by um, a white family and in a part of the country that, um, you know, has a hard time understanding some of the reasons why people think that there needs to be change when it comes to, you know, racial equity issues. And that I also have family of my husband's that he grew up in Atlanta. There's a long history of their fight for civil rights. So I can bring other perspective in. I'm not using it as my own, but you know, I have shared more of that and I have found people have become more personalized in some ways to be more open because they are like, oh, I, I didn't know that about you. And I didn't know some of the things that we're talking about right now. You have experience with them. And for whatever reason, I, maybe it's, just humanity. I don't know, Mel, if you have that experience yeah. as well. There's an interesting thing happening, and maybe, you know, it's just my personal opinion, the role of workplace now versus in the past. In the past, you show up, get a paycheck, you are, should be passionate about your work, you should love it, but for the most part, it's almost two-dimensional, like it's my workplace, and I have relationships there, coworkers, friendships, you know, people I like, you spend the most time there. I think it's transformed into almost a common denominator of where we're talking about these things and we're changing as a society and as a community and as a country, right? Um, you know, the things that you, I guess, the only other place that's sort of a shared, uh, shared experience is school, K through 12 or, or college, post-secondary, I guess, if, if you're able to go to post-secondary. Um, and it's obvious these things have not been tackled uh, in, in the education system. Um, and so the other common denominator across all of us is workplace. Uh, and so I think, you know, as we circle back on the conversation around corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility, or corporate social justice responsibility, whatever uh, you want to call it now, um, these are the places that people are learning and growing and changing and hearing other stories and thinking about their identity. Uh, which is really interesting to me in that the workplace is the place that this is happening versus, uh, you know, some other entity. Um, recently, and look, I have no scientific evidence on this, but so many companies are hiring chief 
DNI officers now. Uh, it's like the hot position to be in right now, mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, and people are moving around. Like this person here now is over there as as the 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 DNI officer. Uh, I think companies just know that these conversations are happening within their walls versus us having them in community groups or in families or whatever. Might they're happening there, but workplaces are totally different when it comes to corporate responsibility in that what used to be a company creating volunteer programs or something else, you know, set initiatives. It's now actually, how do we, how do we learn, grow, change for the betterment of society? Um, And then an active part beyond that in terms of, well, what is our commitment to society? Is it funding? Is it a statement? Is it changing our brand? Our logos? Is it changing our the composition of our board of directors? You know, what is our commitment, our action beyond our walls? Um, a really interesting time to think about quote unquote workplace and the impact and the influence and the the weight it holds right now outside of a government, right? The government, as I said before, the government always was looked to as the entity that influences the country, makes change, you know, spends hundreds of billion dollars on this one thing. And it, mm-hmm. and now I think this is the first time we're seeing the role of workplace really having that impact across everything um, in terms of people thinking about this so much more. But to Jamie's point, this is where the learning is happening. And it's so surprising of all places that you would not expect it. You're learning more about yourself at work than anywhere else you've probably ever learned about yourself and learning more about others, uh, you know, uh, in, in other stories, other backgrounds, other, you know, people than you've ever learned in your life. And it's because of the workplace. I think that's so interesting. We started the conversation talking about how we met in grad school. I remember having a professor at Stern who was basically just trying to be encouraging of me saying, oh, I know all the, I know all the business school students want, this, want the social impact jobs, but he was saying to me, let me tell you why you, <laughs> you will be competitive for these roles. And his whole thing was around this, this bigger orientation that you need to have. How does, how does society impact business? And that he was telling me, oh, you understand this. You understand public policy you understand these social issues and it's going to become a big asset to you. And, and so, and I believe, I believed him and I, and he was right. And now fast forward to what Mel was just talking about in terms of workplace. I actually think that one of the biggest differentiators for people who want to, you know, have a role, um, whether it's in DEI or it's in corporate philanthropy or in a space like we work in, if you have the ability to actually, you know, lead conversation and action around people's identities and their connection to what an organization or company does and the kind of impact, like that is to me what is now required. So mm-hmm. you said this, Rebecca, you know, is there something unique about like those of us who are working in this space and our ability to talk about our identities and to lead other people to think about that and how that translates into both their engagement at work, but also to the greater work that their company could be doing in terms of society and impact. I actually think that 
that is what will, um, you know, differentiate people who might be in grad school now or want to have these kinds of careers because you, you need to be able to, um, you know, I think what I have learned is to have some level of vulnerability to share where your identity is coming from and this whole sort of sum of all your experiences, but then um, really help other people that you work with um, through that so that they can actually be a part of the impact that your company could have. Um, That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. It's interesting what you said, uh, how society influences business. And it was very much a mindset back then, right? Yes. Um, like, you know, what is business doing? Business is just interested in greenwashing. Uh, you know, what, what truly are they doing to, you know, around corporate responsibility? And I think now, I'm not saying it's the only thing, and I'm not saying companies are perfect. There's a lot of, of change that needs to happen in companies. So I'm not standing up for, for corporate America fully. But I'm saying that it's almost, you know, very much how business influences society uh, now, in 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 part, right? A lot of things influence society right now. I'm not saying, but it's so interesting. Just that one phrase you you used that was very much common in the, you know, in, around 2006 in terms of how uh, society influences business, how we can get business on track to to do better things. Um, we're not there yet. Still a lot of room to grow, but especially in the last four months or so, how much business has influenced society in terms of um, team members, in terms of people within companies rising up, using their voices, making sure that change is happening through something as that holds a lot of weight like a company. Mm -hmm. Guys, I wanna thank you so much for your time today i loved chatting i think i could do the duo interview again like i don't think no. i think it worked it when did we start right? when did we start recording <laughs> when did we start <laughs> thank you rebecca thank you you can follow jamie and mel's work on linkedin i'd strongly recommend following the social innovation summit on linkedin and subscribing to their newsletters they have incredible content and they're always congregating change makers and impact drivers Episodes of Nuance of Impact drop every Wednesday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a sneak peek of next week's guest, follow us on Instagram. I'm your host, Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact. We'll see you next Wednesday.